You're listening to Live from My Mother's Basement with me, Mike Marino. That's a wonderful song. Is that a clock? That's a clock. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Live from My Mother's Basement. We have an unbelievable show and an unbelievable guest lined up for tonight's episode. As you can see, we are not in the basement. However, we are in a legendary singer's home in an unbelievable area of Boca Raton, Florida. So ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to singing sensation, superstar, real life cousin, this is Peter Lemongello. Hey, cousin Mike, what a thrill to be here with you. Oh my Hello, God. everybody. Yes. Thank you so much for allowing us to bring the camera equipment into your beautiful home. Oh, thank you. There's a lot of nostalgic stuff in here from his career and from, I see some antiques here, which I love as well because everybody knows I love antiques. And I just didn't have it in me to take my sign that says live from my mother's basement and tape it to this gorgeous wall so if everybody's out there wondering exactly what i did with that big sign i rolled it up put it back in the suitcase and said to myself we're doing it this way all right we have our wine we're ready to talk and uh and maybe have a snack or two that was actually created by someone in the family and we'll talk about that in a little while ladies and gentlemen in the world of singing stars a lot of people know the life of of Frank Sinatra. We might know Engelbert Humperdinck. We might know who else was coming out at around that time too. Oh, Tom Jones. Tom Jones. Um, the other guy with the, with the two girls behind him. Oh, Tony Orlando. Tony Orlando. Yes. But do we know about Peter Lemangelo? A lot of people do. A lot of people remember. Um, some newer generations Maybe they don't, but I think it's important that a lot of people who don't start to learn tonight on my show, if they haven't learned already on Google, so I Googled that crap out of you. <laughs> I learned everything that I didn't already know, uh, stuff that, of course, that my mother told us about that in the day, but before that, how you created that commercial that launched you into stardom that to these days... People don't even realize you were the first guy long before the word social media, long before the word Facebook or podcast, Amazon. Long before people had credit cards. That too. Interesting point. Yes, very interesting point because I I remember the the, the way people told you on television how to pay your bill which we never hear anymore. Send check or money order. Send check or money order. I don't know if people know about money orders anymore. How about this? P.O. Box. Well, yeah. And, Send and check or like, money order to P.O. Box. Yeah, and then uh, things like Gramercy Park Station and all those things. I don't places. even remember that. Well, no, see, that's when at the end of the commercial, it said uh, how to send your money. Right. So send your money to, uh, to oh, I'm happy they were sending it to me. But uh, Yes. Uh, they had to send it to uh, Gramercy Park Station, New York, New York, and then there was always a. Uh, uh, there wasn't there weren't zip codes as we know now. There wasn't even that many area codes. Yeah. So let's rewind. Here's what we're talking okay. about. Okay. How did I create myself? Yeah, Peter Lemangelo, nationally known, internationally known singer. Let's say late '60s, early '70s. When was the hit? '76. '76. All right, so 70s, comes on the scene. But as a young guy, he grew up where I grew up, in an Italian neighborhood called Jersey City in a specific area. There were specific areas of these neighborhoods. I don't even remember why they were labeled that neighborhood, but I think maybe you could tell us. No, I really don't know. I can tell you this. We grew up in the Marion section, as your dad and uh, all our relatives did. Um, obviously, your, my grandmother and... Her maiden name was Marino, and her brother was your grandfather. Still to this day, 
my family history confuses the shit out of me. Holy because shit. there were so many of them, and like we were talking before, they died so young, so a lot of stuff wasn't written down. Uh, they didn't have a lot of pictures taken of themselves, and there was no such thing as... A lot of recipes died with them, too. So yeah, that's the true. The best food I ever had in my life was lost when they died. That's almost hilarious. Because they didn't they didn't even How do you make macaroni? Eh? Well, it was in a book. The book is gone. <laughs> you gotta have to dig it up somewhere. It's gone now and there's and nothing, nothing you can, can do, do about, about it. it. I appreciate that. <laughs> We're talking about a section in Jersey City where pretty much everybody was Italian. If you came out of your house and you said, Hey Italian guy, everybody would come out of their house. Well, I have to tell you that uh, as a young child I moved away I moved to Long Island when I was seven. But for the first seven years of my life, living in, in the Marion section of Jersey City, I thought everybody was Italian. I didn't even know if I knew the word Italian at the time. But, I mean, even the priests were Italian. <laughs> in our parishes, Father Radioli, Father Citarelli, Father Finelli. Sister uh, Fettuccini Alfredo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to tell you about Catholic school because I used to get beat up every day. Nurses, I mean nurses. See, this is one of the... Nuns are great. This is going to be great because our conversation is never going to go where it was supposed to go. We're already in church. Yeah. Five minutes we're talking about the Catholic church. Everybody was Italian. I used to think... I went to uh, Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, I lived on Wales Avenue, which was uh, the corner of Broadway and Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the corner of Broadway and Wales. We're talking about a city that was so small, but for some reason or other, they sectioned it off. So in a little section where we were, it was called the Marion section. And then there was the Heights. And we actually used to fight each other like the Sharks and the Jets, only everybody was Italian. <laughs> there might have been an Irish guy or two in there who uh, oh, would sorry. start the trouble. But in this area, there's all these Italian people, and everybody went to the same church, Everybody probably got married around the same time, 18, 19 years old. You had a kid before you were 20, 21. And then there was a small group of people who thought, you know what? I want to be in showbiz. I was one of them. We moved from Jersey City when I was seven. We went out to the suburbs. So you said seven, you went to uh, Long moved, Island? I moved to Long Island. I didn't even know that. Why'd you go to Long Island? Uh, my mother's mother and father lived in, in a town called Deer Park. And uh, they were building a, a new development in North Babylon, which is the next town. And uh, it was time, uh, you know, to, to enjoy the suburbs. Everybody else was exploding to the suburbs in those days. I mean, we had, uh, we had the most beautiful little house. I didn't know it was little because I... Until I got older and made money and bought bigger houses, I didn't know how small the house I grew up in you was. Me? When you were in Jersey City, how big was the apartment that you lived in? Because uh, we had uh, Paul, Michael, and Anthony, mom and dad, in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, you know, house uh, apartment. And I think my younger brother Anthony slept in the sink. You know, I tell you, that's not even a joke. I tell you how ridiculous the times were. My uncle was getting married. So my grandparents came in from Long Island. So it was my mother and father, my uncle, my brother and I, and her, my mother's brother. All of it, one bathroom. Everybody got ready for the wedding at the same time. How the hell we all got to yeah. the wedding on time, I'll never know. Now, um, today, we all have our own bathrooms, and we're still late. But it's really amazing to me how little we had. For example, we'd have a big dinner with 25, 26 people, I can't imagine. We almost had to all eat at the same time because we were elbow to elbow. And one day I went back to see it with my brother, who, the famous bowler, U.S. Open champion, Mike Langella. He and I went back to 25 Wales Avenue just for nostalgia. And the guy who owned the place came outside. He was wondering what we were doing there, and we explained. And then he realized who we were, and he now invited us inside. So we actually went in and looked at the place, and I was, I was shocked. I said, how did it get so small? Right. I mean, we really thought it was, well, you always think things are bigger when you're young. But, boy, we had really humble beginnings. I didn't know that. Not only they were humble beginnings, but I did what you did. Went back to Grandma's building, and you look at where you used to live. Wallace Avenue. Wallace Avenue, not too far from the church and everything else. One block over. Exactly. Yeah. And then you wonder, 
how did the place shrink? I could have sworn <laughs> this was gigantic. And how did the furniture even fit in this little place? Then you realize their furniture was crap and it was small. <laughs> but I, probably like you, we went and had our Sunday parties in the basement of the buildings. And well, it was kind of creepy had a kitchen and dirty. In the basement. Yes. Everybody. And, and uh, I thought that was standard. And they had the most enormous tables. They used to 25, 30 people around in this enormous table that obviously was built in the basement kitchen. And everybody was short, so the basements <laughs> always had low, low <laughs> ceilings. Like I'm 5'10. Nobody in the family was 5'10. They were all 5'3, 5'4, 5'6. And so I nev nobody ever had to duck. One uncle, my uncle Mikey, my father's brother, he was 5'11. He was the only, we thought he was a giant. Yes. Especially in the basement, they hung down like a, know, like it lurch. A, it was a fluke, but the food they would make. Oh, See, my that's God. that's the thing. Uh. Were the times better? I only yeah. remember enjoying myself so much. There was dirt on the ground. There was the ugliest tablecloth on that table. The table wasn't a real table. It was a piece of wood that they borrowed from somebody else's house. It was like a 4 by 12 a uh, piece of plywood. I'm sure it was plywood with a top on it, you know, yeah. and bases. But here's the thing. They made everything from scratch. They made ravioli when I was a kid. Oh, see, here we go. That were Now, what's ravioli like people see it today? No. These were macaroni pies. <laughs> they were. They were rigot, what we call rigotta pies. Yep. They had, they were like uh, six inches square. If you could eat three of them, you were the 49 Yankees. This was really something. And the most delicious, they put mint in it and flavors of their own, and they made their own tomato sauce, which permeated the neighborhood. When I was a kid, I'd grow up on a, uh, growing up on a Sunday morning, my mother would fry meatballs that could wake the neighborhood up. I mean, it, it would just permeate. I would get up because the combination when she was making coffee, in those days they only made coffee in a percolator. In the with, percolator. We called know, it the Maginette. Right, right. With the, La Maginette, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had that glass, in Italian. Had, La Maginette. Right, had the glass top on it. Yep. And it would go... Beep, beep, blop, beep, blop, beep, beep, right. But the smell oh. would wake you up. Just the best in the world. And so we had this great food. Everybody loved each other. Nobody talked about money. Nobody talked about politics. Nobody talked about who had more than the other because nobody did. Everybody was just getting by. Broke. But happy as hell. Yes. And, and so we didn't know it was humble beginnings. We thought we were the richest people in the world. We had the best food. We loved everybody, and everybody loved us, and we had so much fun. Uh, our family was not the type to fight. They would always enjoy each other. And of course, it was a little chauvinistic in those days. The men would get served. The women would stand by the kitchen, and, and just it was like a, a chain gang. Yeah. They would deliver the food. And the men would eat, and then the men would play cards, or you know that Italian game with the. It's it's almost like, uh, I can't remember the name. What is it? Scopa. Is that the name? Okay. All right. Well. And anyway, we just had a wonderful time, and we didn't know we were poor. I think we were rich. We well, had I thought it all. we were. I really thought we were. Yeah. I remember sitting at the kids' table, and all you did was look at the adults and said. Someday, I'm going to get to sit at the adult's table. But you didn't realize one of them had to pass away for you to get that chair. <laughs> but everybody and in all the neighborhoods ate in the basement like this. And I do so specifically remember food was made from scratch. And you would see a grandma or a great-grandma somehow making the macaroni with her fingers. And the and, and the meatballs. There, I don't know if they bought sausage or made it. I really don't know. But I can tell you this. We never went up into their house. We arrived, and we walked down into the basement. Down. That's where everybody was. Huge gatherings. I know in Brooklyn, New York's the same way. Brooklyn. Right now, people are writing in from Hoboken. I see some people writing in from Bayonne. All these towns were pretty much the same. Newark, New Jersey. And then we're not talking about a basement like what I do live from my mother's basement in the house, that type of basement. We're talking about almost something that looked like a garage underneath a building. And there were pipes in the ceiling. 
and you didn't even know what those pipes before. But but if you went down there as a kid by yourself, you were petrified, and all you thought was Frankenstein is down here. That's the way my father used to threaten us. Don't go in the basement without your parents. Frankenstein's down there, and you never went. You never went. That was it. But See, some things, people even say in Benson. Two things Jersey Brooklyn. City had. One was the best Italian bread on the planet. You can't get that in Florida. You can't. Uh, I mean, I try for Italian bread down here. It's like pound cake. Right. It's, there's nothing. No one here is good. See, cousin Billy Greco saying it was called the cellar. That's right. Right. It was. That wasn't. The it cellar. wasn't a basement. It was, it was a different. cellar. We had basements in the suburbs, cellars in the city. And they were dirty, they were filthy. And you know what else was in the cellar? The control that worked the lights and the uh, the heating system. And he used to scare the shit out of me. We'd go down there, we were petrified. And sometimes you'd go down there and you find old tools from grandparents from back in the day that were primitive, scared the shit out of you. Now the girls are going to hate this, but it's a true story. It is your new friend, Michael Martucci. we got to do a quick shout out. I love Michael Martucci. Michael! Hey. Nice to see you. Keep on watching. We're talking old school right down here. All right, here. Michael, this is for you. It's his favorite song, my hit record. Oh, we're going to go right to a song? Do I love you, don't you know by now? That's for Mike. We're going to sing the whole... Well, I'm not going to sing it, but we're <laughs> going to get some of that a little bit later. The other thing I was starting to say is that in Jersey City, I said I'm going to cushion it by saying the girls are not going to be thrilled over this. Women were not allowed in bars. And there were nothing but bars in Jersey City. And I'm telling you, that was the hangout for men. But they had a grill. It was a bar and grill. The women could walk in a side door and go in the back where they had a grill and have the best food in the world. And it was, ravioli was a dollar. Pizza was a dollar. Uh, I mean, those were the days. Oh, my God. Everybody could eat. I never have good ravioli anymore. No. I, I mean, I really do remember my grandmother making it from scratch. You watched it. Remember they had a towel? They would put the towel down on a washing machine. Or on the ironing board that came oh. out of the wall. Remember that? That's true story. Yeah, the Everybody had an ironing board that came out of the wall. It was in the kitchen. They'd open the door and the ironing board would, right? And they would make the ravioli on that. Then they'd bring it into the bedroom to lay it on the bed to dry. And wait, well, when I came home from Vietnam, while I was in Vietnam, my aunt wrote me a letter and said, when you come home, God willing, you come home safe and sound, I'm going to make you ravioli from scratch like we used to do in the old days. Because by 1968, when I got out of Vietnam, those things really didn't happen anymore. Yeah, we were already living in the suburbs. I just, you know, now that we brought up this subject, I really remember my grandmother laying out the raviolis on a towel yeah. on the washing machine in the kitchen and you we never really understood what it was for, but it was drying out the, uh, I guess, the pasta before she filled it with the cheese. And then they boiled everything, and by the time they put the gravy on top of everything, you were living large. See, what you just said, we used to call it gra gravy. Right. Macaroni and gravy when I was a kid. There was no such thing. Pa when did pasta happen? It must have been in the 70s. All of a sudden, it wasn't in to say macaroni, and we had to say pasta. And then they called it sauce. We never called it sauce. Macaroni and gravy. And that was Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday in our house. We'd always have gravy, because sometimes we had it with peas, sometimes we had it with lentils. Well, we, what was that called? It was called uh, Bastelandique was the lentils. We got to do a quick shout out before this guy passes by. Um, Butch Bradley is in Las Vegas. Butch, this is my legendary cousin, Peter Lemangelo. Stay tuned. you got to watch this because we're coming out to Vegas to visit you someday. He's a nice Jersey boy, a very funny comedian. He's got a big, uh, he's got a residency in Las Vegas, Nevada. The Irish taught the Italians to cook. Oh, now we're going to fight. There's going to be a fight on the show now. Did you hear what he just said? No, what he said. He said the Irish taught the Italians how to cook. Yeah, with vodka. <laughs> Tuesday, Thursdays, and Sundays. Hey, cuz, how you doing? Let me tell you, um, a lot of Irish that's really great that he up. did that. So a lot of the, Irish friends would come to my house. My mother was making lentils and macaroni. It's <laughs> called Basta and Deek. And they would say, what are you having? And my father, my mother would say, well, we're only having lentils. And my father says, don't you apologize. We're eating it. He's welcome to it, but don't <laughs> apologize. And he'd have one reluctant dish of it, and then he'd eat four dishes of it because it was so great. I never really liked peas in my in my gravy, I hated that, and I never really was a big fan of. Uh, no, there was no peas in the gravy. 
No, when you just the said peas and the macaroni had oil on them. Well, that's I owe you. Yeah, that's right. Then we, we I hated that. Gravy was Sunday. That was a big deal. That was you know, there's the a big argument in the world amongst the Italians whether we call it gravy or sauce. And some linguist from Italy corrected me on my last show and said it's sauce. And she said sauce in the Roman dialect. I said, well, we're the Mountain Guineas, and I speak Brutsays. And my mother said gravy, and if she says gravy, it's gravy. You shut your mouth, you eat it. <laughs> well, but they didn't call it, look, my family's all Nabokan and, and Bades. Mm-hmm. We don't like to say Bades too often because <laughs> that's a little embarrassing. But the, I tell you what, my friend Victor Moan was Bades, so we had something in common. See, here we go. Now here comes the people from Italy saying suga sauce. Ask for gravy in Italy and see what happens to you. <laughs> No. We could go to Rome. Put some gravy on my macaroni. <laughs> Why you stand peas with onions and bacon over macaroni? My wife and I. It goes another Irish guy. My wife and I had macaroni in Rome one night because we had had so much rich food all week long, or ten days, whenever however long we were there. So I go to the maitre d'. I said, "Look, we're just looking for a dish of macaroni and uh, and a light tomato sauce. That's all we want." And he says, I know just the water you want. I said, I can't do it. So then I thought, you know, I haven't had peas in a while. So do me a favor. <laughs> Give me some peas in a side dish. By the way, the peas, this is 20 years ago, the peas were $11. So just, uh, I know the meal was $275 American. It was like 8 million lira, you know. But my wife doesn't like peas. So I had to keep them on the left side because she was on my right side. Because I respect her, and if she doesn't like peas, she doesn't have to look at it. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I could never do the peas. Look, here you comes like Billy Greco. Wait, wait. You like lentils? No, I don't. Oh, jeez, she doesn't like lentils. She doesn't like lentils either. Billy but Greco be- is uh, actually... beautiful, so I don't care what she likes. Or just, I'll give her what she wants. <laughs> sauces marinara. Gravy has meat in it. Meatball sauces, brajol, pork, etc. Now, that's the way I was brought up. I too. never liked Brazil. I don't know why, but it wasn't one of my faves. Brazil? Yeah, I never liked it. Because really? they used to stick raisins in it. I don't like raisins. No, my mother never did the raisins. Yeah. We had just the steak. That's the barres. The garlic. They, put, they made pies with onions in it. I mean, who does that? Only the barres did that. Right now, there's such a, an Instagram fight amongst the people watching the show that they're going to have an argument while we do the show. Me, right, Mikey, let's talk Mike. about All right, so let's move record. along. Of course, we got to get into this. But I told you, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of fun and going down the wrong street. So let's go all the way back. He's in Jersey City. He's seven. You move from the city. You go out to Long Island. Now you're out in Long Island. When did you get bit with the bug that made you say, I want to be a singer? Right before we moved to Long Island, my uncle got married at the Brass Reel restaurant in New York City. And they had a three-piece band. And my father, God rest his soul, he said, you got to get up. My mother was a great singer, but she would never sing in front of people. But when I was growing up, she and I would sing in the house. My brother Michael, the bowler, he was two and a half years older than me, so he was out of the house. So it was just my mother and I, and we would sing a lot. So I learned two songs, Your Cheating Heart and uh, I Believe, the Frankie Lane song. I believe for every drop of rain that falls. Okay. So we get to the wedding, and my father sees the band, and he says, you're going to get up and sing. I said, oh, I was scared to death. I wouldn't do it. So he said, well, if you don't, you have no guts. So uh, so I did it. I was seven years old. And I I really knew the song pretty well, and I, I could sing pretty well, and everybody went crazy. Maybe because I was seven years old. You know, they went, the fact that I had a big edge on everybody because nobody in the audience knew my whole song. <laughs> so and you did it seven? I did seven years old. I did. I believe in your cheating heart. Well, place went crazy. I got the bug that day. I came home. I was uh, in my uh, living room floor. I was drawing the Peter Lemonzello show. <laughs> uh, you know, right away I was. I, I drew a picture of me at the microphone, uh, and I was. I believe me, I was hooked. Then I became a drummer when I was ten, and I got into a rock band, and. I was the only one that sang in the band. The other two guys couldn't sing, so I did a few songs every night. But then the Beatles happened in 64, and all the groups said, well, who can sing here? Because we got to get three microphones in front of the band, and everybody has to sing. 
problem with that is three guys standing in front of you while I was a drummer, they were hiding me. So I was having trouble picking up girls. I was having trouble being recognized. And none of them could sing. They sure couldn't sing better than me. But it didn't matter. So I gave I would, up the I would drums. Say the hardest instrument to play while you sing is the drums. Yeah, because in the beginning, I would sing at the same beat I was playing. <laughs> That's so hard. I couldn't even talk without playing in the same... talk. I was talking in the same beat I was playing. But eventually, you know, a drummer does four things at once. So... You know, the, the bass drum is 4-4, four, four, the hi-hat is 2-4, then you're doing the triplets on the high, you know, on the cymbal, and, and the snare drum you're working periodically. So I, I mastered all of that, but I still couldn't pick up girls that way. <laughs> so I quit the drums, and I wanted to be a stand-up singer. So I, I banged around a little bit, and then I caught a really good break. I got an audition at the Copacabana to be the production singer. In those days, they had a chorus line, and a, a male singer would sing these production songs, you know, the special material, and I win. $875 a week. Nice. And this is 1966, and I am... Good money. Yeah, and I am, at the time, I have to save up to weigh myself. I'm completely broke, and I get a job for six weeks at 875 Nice. Next week, I get drafted. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's what I said. When the draft was a draft. Well, Vietnam War escalated and I got drafted. We should bring back the draft. <laughs> well, I got my, my opinion about that. <laughs> we should bring back the draft. I want to see how many guys in my day, you know, my father was in World War II and my uncles in, in Korea and World War II. And so when it was my turn, I didn't, I didn't balk. I just said, okay, I don't like this, but I'm doing it. Um, today, I think there'll be some opposition. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, my career was over. I'm stuck in, in the Army for two years, one of them in Vietnam. And uh, I, had, I came out of the Army, I had to start from scratch. I didn't know anybody. You know, I, really, I mean, I, you know, I know how naive someone could be when they're first starting out. And I mean, I called the William Morris agency, asked to speak to William Morris. <laughs> he was dead 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I said William Morris agency. So, anyway, I'm watching TV one night and. Who's on TV but Crazy Eddie? I don't know if you ever have any. I remember Crazy Eddie. And he's selling his, you know, my prices are insane. You know. And I I was divorced at the time, and I, I'm living alone, and I said, this has to be, there has to be something more to this thing. He just said he had two stores. How the hell can you be on TV with two stores? One of them was in New Jersey. Yeah, but I thought you had be Procter and Gamble or, or Colgate, you know, to be on TV. So For those next, of you who are actually um, thinking about this and you don't know, Crazy Eddie uh, owned these electronic stores. stores. Electronic stores. They sold radios for your car and VCRs, speakers yeah. and maybe a Casio organ. But he was so crazy on TV that he would go like this, I'm Crazy Eddie. I won't be beat. Our prices are insane. And all you wanted to do was go to see if he was actually in the store and punch him in the head. <laughs> but he that made you go Mike. to the he store. Did a great impression. Didn't he do it like that? Yeah, it was perfect. He went like this with his hands to the television. He was like, oh, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go see Crazy Eddie. So the next day, I said, I got to find out how much TV costs. Well, I found out TV was so much cheaper than anybody ever dreamed. And I'll get to that in a second. But up to then, I mean, I know if you go in, if you go in the newspapers to advertise, you never get famous because nobody knows what you sound like. And, and it's, it's flat. It's just a picture. That doesn't help you. On the radio, they don't know what you look like. So I thought, just this has it all. This has sight, sound. I'm going to go on TV. Well, I know I sounded crazy, and a lot of people told me I was crazy, so I stopped telling people. I just kept working for years, raising money. I met, I met different businessmen and got them. It wasn't the mafia. It wasn't anything like that. I got guys who were in the uh, Midas Muffler business, a doctor, you know, several other people, you know. And I got them to put up the money. I found out I could buy 100 spots a week on New York television, which would get me... All, all the way up to almost all of Long Island, half of Jersey, some of Pennsylvania, and all of upstate New York 
as far as the Catskills, anyway. And I could buy these spots, one-minute spots, for $100. So I'm thinking, my God, if I bought 100 spots a week, I'd get famous. And I told a few people about it, and they said, you're crazy. You're absolutely nuts. You can't go on TV as an unknown and sell records. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Suppose I was on for 10 weeks. Would I still be unknown? I mean, wouldn't they relate me to my own commercial? They'll say, well, it's never been done. See, people are funny that way. If it's never been done, they automatically assume it can't be done. Right. So I said, well, look, I know I might be crazy, but I'm not going to lose because I had been in show business for several years and nobody, I mean, the older people on my block didn't know me. Right. So, I mean, this is crazy. I said, I have to, do, I have to pull a stunt to get famous. So I bought these hundred spots a week, and I only had enough for four weeks when I started, which today sounds like a joke. It was only $40,000. But we sold so many records the first four weeks that it enabled me to just keep parlaying it back in and buying more time because I figured the longer I stay on, the better it's going to get. What was the title of that album? And Love 76. So Love album. 76 was the album. How many songs were on the album? Uh, there were 10 songs on the studio album, and then about 12 or 15 on my live album. And the reason we made it a double album package is because, and this is ironic, I had worked the Westbury Music Fair, 2,800-seat venue, and I taped it. But the only reason I did it was to convince my backers to put up the money. Right. Because I felt that they saw me in a star setting and they liked it. It was a gamble, but, you know, we're more gamblers. At least if you go into show business, you have to be a gambler. And they put up the money based on that show. And and so, um, can somebody tell me what I'm talking about? You're talking about that, how you put up all this money and you put it together to put the infomercial yes. on television and we and kept, started selling the album. And we kept parlaying the money. And before you know it, somebody said, we have to, uh, the people who booked the commercial spots said, we have to, I mean, everything happened. I mean, I, I, I had a press agent. I was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. When it broke on the new, on the TV. I mean, I was on all over TV news. Uh, you know, I was on the Today Show. Uh, everything happened. So my, my uh, the people that placed my uh, ads said, you have to do a concert. And I said, concert? Who's going to come? They said, wait till you see what happens. We're going to do Lincoln Center, 2,816 seats. Tickets sold in three hours. Right. Now, this is all because of the infomercial that you put on television back at a time where they actually had to pay by check, check or money order. I don't know if anybody even remembers doing something like that. I definitely do. You went to the bank and you said, I need a money order to pay for this product. Or you had to have somebody in your family at that time cut a check, P.O. box, send it in, and then you waited. Then you got the album in the mail. He was selling so many that it catapulted him into stardom. So some people are actually asking the question, are you really the first man to sell a million albums on the uh, show on television? Like that? It's possible I'm the only one, and, and the reason I, because I don't know if anyone has done it since. But the truth is, it was much more than a million. It was a million eight hundred thousand before it fizzled, and years later, I mean twenty, thirty years later, people still teach it in high schools, I mean colleges, or on marketing in marketing classes. I had a lady from Brazil come up to me and say, I remember your commercials. I never put commercials on in Brazil. Somebody stole the commercial, went to Brazil, and sold records there. I mean, the one thing about um, stardom and uh, success in records is you immediately get pirated. Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah. So whatever we sold was an absolute miracle because we said on the commercial, not available in stores. I'll be damned if every store didn't have it. Tower Records had my 150 albums in the window. I walked by, I said, I go in, I said, think, how the hell do you have my records? He goes, I don't know. Because <laughs> there's a thief everywhere and somebody's always going to pirate something. And so we so traced the guy who sold them the records, traced them down, it was a vacant lot in Brooklyn. So I couldn't sue anybody. <laughs> so tell us about the time when you went on to uh, uh, the talk shows because... How many hits were actually on the album? Uh, actually, 
one really big hit for us was called Do I Love You, written by Paul Anka. He had given me the song on a telephone, cerebral palsy telephone at the Ed Sullivan Theater uh, uh, during a station break. And uh, I did it. I debuted it on The Tonight Show. And uh, that's the one that, that popped out of the album. And that was the single we had out of that. But um, the other songs, other song, we had three on the album that made noise, not like Do I Love You. Do I Love You was, was the, the, I, I, the best break I caught is I, I became associated with Teddy Randazzo. He produced the Love 76 studio album. He had written Going Out of My Head, Hurt So Bad, and several other songs for uh, Will Anthony and the Imperials and Steve Lawrence and many others. Uh, and he and I had really great chemistry together, and uh, I liked all the songs that he was doing. We, we did love songs to a disco beat, and ballads and love songs to a disco beat, and it ended up being called Mood Rock. And uh, right away, there was a mood ring uh, <laughs> thing. Uh, and then right away, Chevy Chase did me on Saturday Night Live, Peter Lemon mood ring, you know. And uh, he would change colors as he sang different songs. So that that was one of the things that happened to me. Why am I banging my hand? Uh, so you have this huge rise to fame and success. And then what started to turn things around? And what was your favorite show to be on anyway? Because you did talk about being on The Tonight Show and how you actually got on. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I grew up watching from the Jack Parr show to Johnny Carson, you know, and uh, it was my dream to be on The Tonight Show. And let me tell you, it really was a dream come true because I, I auditioned 15 times and got turned down every time. Right. And I would go, every time I had $20 to pay a piano player, I would go up to their audition. See, if you remember of Agba in those days, in order for them to pay $320, they had to audition anybody who was an AGBA member. They didn't have to put you on, but they had to audition you. So I was the biggest pain in the ass they ever had. And uh, It was a Screen Actors Guild thing a long time ago, too. They had to look at a certain amount of people for a, mil a film so that SAG would be satisfied, although you weren't going to get that role anyway. Right, exactly. And it was basically the same way. Uh, Fred DeCordover... Uh, and, and Peter LaSalle, the talent coordinator and producer, would come to these auditions, and they were very polite and they were very nice, but they weren't about to put you on the show. Then I got booked at the Rainbow Grill, the 65th floor of the NBC building. And I called Fred de Cordova. In those days, you can get through to people. Today, you can't. Nobody, yeah. nobody answers their phone today. And I said, look, he knew who I was because I had auditioned so many times. And I said, Mr. DeCordova, just come, bring your wife, bring your girlfriend, whatever you want. Come up and have dinner on me. If you don't like, I want you to see me with a band in a nightclub. I want you to see me, in, you know, not just with a piano in a cold setting. I said, if you don't like me, I'll never bother you again. That's probably not true, but I said that. And I said, if you do like me, naturally I want you to put me on. But my third song, he went like this. He gave me the thumbs up sign. He said, the following Wednesday, I did my first Tonight Show. What song did you sing on the Tonight Show? Ah, this is the funniest thing in the world. Nobody's going to believe this. Each time I auditioned, I used the same song. It was a Burt Bacharach song say, uh, called I'll Never Fall in Love Again. What do you get when you yeah, fall yeah, in love? Yeah, I remember love? that song. You only get lies and pain and sorrow. So for at least until tomorrow, I... Never fallen in love again. Is that any good? Sounded great. I'm an old man. I still and you sang that on a Tonight Show. Yes. Yeah, so what? So Fred DeCordova says, "What song?" You, I did the same song at every audition. One day, Fred comes up at the auditions and he says, "You know, why do you sing the same song all the time?" I said, "Well, you don't know me. I was hoping to get used to the song, and maybe it would grow on you." <laughs> so he, he was he was a nice man. So he laughed and he said. Now I get booked on the Tonight Show, and I get to NBC that day, uh, you know, same place actually, Dirty Rock, and he says, "What are you going to sing?" I said, "The same one." Oh, I said, "I don't know. You have a favorite?" Because I had all kinds of arrangements. I could do any song. 
He said, do that one you do at the, re- at the audition all the time. I like it. <laughs> that shows how nutty show business can be. Yeah. Anyway, years later, I got on The Tonight Show twice in one week. So I have to tell that story. Don Rickles was the host. I did one of the best shots I ever did. I sang Do I Love You. And I really broke it up. I'm proud to say. Don came out. And just he was just he was beside himself. He was so thrilled that I had done so well. We had worked at Copacabana together and several other places, Vegas, Reno, Tahoe, all that stuff. So they put me on the on the couch and we had it was pretty good. It went well. Uh, two days later I'm at Joe Scandori's house, his manager and mine at the time, and we're in Chatsworth, California, and he says, Get up. He's get up. We got to go to NBC. I said, well, "Why am I going?" Because Don was hosting for a whole week. He said, "Cause you're gonna be on the Tonight Show tonight." I said, "I was just waking up. I was groggy." I said, "I'm gonna." Be, I said, "I was just on." He said, "Yeah, but well, you're gonna be on again." So I jumped up, got myself ready, and off we went. So I said, "How come I'm on again?" He's way well, he did really great Wednesday. He said Fred DeCordova went nuts, so he decided to bump Jerry Vale and put you on again. So. I mean, I had nothing to do with it, but it was a thrill to be on twice. I don't know if anybody ever got on twice in one week. Yeah. But Jerry Vale never spoke to me again. <laughs> Isn't that something? God rest his soul. He was a nice guy, but he was really pissed. Out of all the entertainers around your time, who was the guys you admired or hung around with or actually got uh, to perform with a lot? Well, it's a hard question to answer. I, I worked with Buddy Hackett. I worked with... Um, uh, Bob Newhart, and naturally Don Rickles. Um, I really had the, the thrill of my life because those places, everywhere we worked, big band, packed houses. Uh, so it was great experience and all that. But I had the most fun meeting Frank Sinatra. Right. I get invited. I, I was now I'm hot. I'm I'm the hottest thing uh, in New York anyway, and uh, we do. Lincoln Center, we went on to do Madison Square Garden and Carnegie Hall and all those places, but the first Lincoln Center, I'm at the Waldorf Astoria at my, we sold it out in three hours, 2,800 people. It was the biggest thrill of my life at that point. We're at the Waldorf Astoria celebrating, and I get a phone call from Jilly's, Jilly's Bar on 52nd Street, and a guy says, the old man wants to meet you, meaning Frank Sinatra. He heard what you did, and he wants to meet. So I get, I ended up at the back table, sitting next to him, and he says, "What's your name, Peter Levangelo?" He goes, "Hey, Paisan." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Where were you born?" I said, "Jersey City Medical Center." That's where his kids were born. Right. And uh, uh, he said, "What did you do tonight?" I said, "Well, I had a concert at Lincoln Center. I sold it out." He said, "Really?" So he asked a bunch of people, and I'm talking to him. I don't even realize. I'm so nervous. I don't even realize who's at the table. I mean, Bill Miller, uh, Pat Henry was at the table, several, Barbara Sinatra, and who's right across from me? Jackie Onassis. Oh, no kid. And I look up and I realize <laughs> it's her. I was so nervous talking to him. I knew, and so they introduced me and she said, oh, this is the best. She said, I, I've seen your commercials. I love your singing. <laughs> and I'm this can't be true. I said, come on, God. Wake me up. This cannot be true. I'm sitting next to Frank Sinatra, and Jackie Kennedy said she loves my singing. Is this the best? It's the best. Oh, life can be so good sometimes. Um, You know, everybody has their favorite songs. I remember my mom always saying, it's your cousin Peter. This is my favorite song. I could have sworn she was saying it. Was there one a lyric where it's rolling down my cheeks? Or oh, that was Rain from the Skies, Rain written by uh, Burt Bacharach. No shit. He wrote that song? No shit. Want to give us a little? I can't even remember the friggin' thing. Let me think. Tears uh, from my eyes, uh, rolling wait. down my face, rolling well, yeah, yeah. down my oh, you're making cheeks it, or face. You make I never down was my a face. singer. I don't know if it's rain from the skies or tears from my eyes. That's about all I can remember. Yeah, rolling down my cheeks. Rolling down my face. My face. Rolling down my face. Well, who knows? You know, this is not. You know, easy. we're gonna have a couple more cocktails, and then it'll come to us. Yeah, because. All right, but give us a little of the uh, 
I guess it's the most famous one. I've seen you sing it many times when we've done shows together. Uh, we've done shows together many times, which I'm happy to share the stage with you, especially as your opening act. And then you sang this one song, I guess it's the, maybe it's the most, most famous song that you have. I mean, Do I Love You? Do I Love You, yes. yes. All right, come on, let us have it. Okay, so I did a little bit for Mike uh, Matsuchi, but... Uh, you guys were singing a lot last night. Okay, here's the story behind Do I Love You. This is really cool. And I hope you'll indulge me and let me tell you. Yes. Years after I had the hit on it, I bump into Paul Anka, and I thank him for giving it to me. And I say to him, he's just the sweetest guy in the world, I say, thank you so much, as you changed my life. He said, he said, uh, I said, why did you get, I said, why did you give it to me? He said, because I thought you'd do a better job. I mean, that's the, just the <laughs> nicest guy in the world. I thought you could do a better job on it. He had heard me sing, and that's why he gave me that song. Anyway, um, now here's the thing. I thought he wrote the song, and a lot of people don't know this story, but actually that song, Do I Love You, and which I'm going to do for you in a minute, and My Way were both suicide notes. Really? Written in Paris, France. See, people in, in uh, well, newspapers in, uh, in France, especially Paris, they print suicide notes because sometimes they're very poignant. And then a guy will read it and put it to music. And that's what happened with My Way. Listen to the lyrics of My Way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. You're right. starting to get it. Right? Holy shit. All right, I'm doing it My that Way. That was a suicide note? Yes. Wow. And... And Paul Anker did the English translation, gave it to Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra hated it, but all his guys said, Frank, you have to do this song. It was, it was your life story. So he ended up doing it. And then after it became a hit, naturally he, tells everybody, he told everybody he loved it, but Do I Love You was the same situation. Uh, uh, later in the song it says, if in death the good Lord is kind, you'll be the last thing on my mind. The guy was about to kill himself. Wow. Now, I don't know how pretty she was uh, or whether it was worth it to kill her, kill himself over, over her. I know if my wife loved me, I probably would, you know, because she's so pretty. But, oh, yeah, okay. So it's beyond the shadow of a doubt, like the mighty river flows as the meadow gaily plays. With the wind on summer days, about as deep as deep can go, from the canyons to the skies, like a mother as she cares for the baby that she bears. Famous part. Bam, bam, bam. Do I love you? Don't you know by now? You normally can't sing this good sitting down. Do I love you? Must I show you how? Do I love you? Must I always say? I'll end it now. Do I love you? Yes, in every way. That's all I can do. And everybody out there in TV land goes nuts for the legendary Peter Lemongello. Well, great stories. These are all uh, the stories that you don't get to hear or read about in the news. You have to wait until you come and watch my podcast live from my mother's basement or the cellar. Look at all the applauses that you're getting. Oh, really? Let's take in some questions for Peter Lemongello right now. Um, and uh, if anybody wants one, we'll make that happen right now. So go ahead and send in your question, and we'll answer that. Peter also has a famous brother. His name is Michael Lemongello who was a star bowler, if you want to tell us about that real quick. Oh, my God, he's my idol. Um, he was famous long before I was on ABC Wide World of Sports. Sports. He wrote, I mean, he won, he won the, uh, he won six PBA titles, Professional Bowlers Association titles, but two majors. The uh, first U.S. Open that was ever held in 1971, and, uh, and the PBA National, which is the equivalent to uh, the Masters Tournament for golf. The biggest thrill of my life is watching my brother beat Don Carter and Dick Weber and all the stars of that day, of that era. Because I love my brother so much, and things I did, like the Tonight Show, although on my first Tonight Show, it stopped the card game. Because they, they were 
incredible gamblers, these oh. bowlers. <laughs> and they would have poker games. But when, my first Tonight Show, they all stopped the card game and watched me on TV, which is a milestone because they don't usually stop gambling for anybody. But my brother was the greatest, the greatest under the gun, meaning under pressure. He was absolutely, I mean, he's still alive, thank God. Um, but he was, he was the best, what they used to call action bowler. But he was a great tournament bowler, too. Uh, he could Superstar bowl bowler, athlete. Here come some questions for Peter. Peter, what was your favorite place to perform? This is coming from Tommy Tarantino on Instagram. <coughs> Hmm. Uh, favorite place, Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall in New York. The famous, famous Carnegie Hall, which I wouldn't mind performing there someday myself. Well, the thrill was just how beautiful it was decorated, you know, how ornate it was, and the thought of how many people had been there. Uh, the Copacabana was the most fun uh, I, I had ever had. Uh, because I worked it uh, with Don Rickles during the heyday of the Copacabana, uh, with the 800 mobsters in the. Uh, one night I'm coming out of the Copacabana, I'm coming out to do my show, and the maitre d's tell me, "All right, stage left, be nice, but don't get too cute, don't flirt with the girls, because at that table is Joey Gallo and his wife, and Jerry Orbach and his wife." He said, now, be nice to them. You know, they said, be nice, you know, don't spend too much time over there. And I'm thinking, Joey Gallo, there's a contract out on Joey Gallo. <laughs> Holy shit. I said, I, I'm not going to go over there. So I was, you know, I was polite and I smiled, but I didn't smile at the wives at all. That night, he invites us all, uh, Joe Scandori and, and uh, Don Rickles and I, to go to Umberto's with him. We refused because we're scared shitless. We think that the Colombo family is going to shoot him. Sure enough, sure enough, he got murdered at Umberto's that night. So thank God we missed that dinner. <laughs> I got to answer a couple more questions before these people get aggravated. Um, this comes in from Joe in Buena Sera, which is an Italian restaurant in northern New Jersey. And the question is, do you and Peter Jr. sing on stage together? So do you and your son sing together? And here comes yes. our cousin Lisa Marino, who's saying hello. Jackie Ann Howard, who is an agent here in Florida, is saying hello to Peter as well. Jackie, I love Jackie. We've been working together for so many years. She was the daughter-in-law of Bobby and Audrey Breen. Bobby Breen, big star in the 30s, uh, became an agent down here. I worked for them for years. Uh, Jackie learned well, and she has the uniqueness of being the only honest agent I ever met in my life. She's fantastic, and I'm lucky enough to spend some time working for her. She is as honest as, well. as could be. And, you know, I have a friend of mine who was dying, and his, his doctor said, we're going to have to give you a heart transplant. He says, well, get me the heart of an agent. And he said, why? <laughs> he says, I want one that's never been used. <laughs> There's some tough people, agents and managers. It's a tough, tough business. It is. We're going to throw a, uh, throw a shout-out to another performer who's getting ready to perform, because we have friends in common, and uh, then we're gonna ask uh, another legendary youngster to come out and say hello to us. So uh, right now, uh, if everybody wants to uh, check out an online show that's nothing but singers and comedians in the female aspect of the world, because this is, um, what is this month? Female Awareness Month. Well, can I just Women say one thing? I know, I know I talk a lot, but can I say one thing? I think, and this is not because we're related, that my cousin Mike Marino is the funniest guy on the planet. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you haven't seen him, find him and go and see his show. He should be the biggest star in show business, and he will be. But in your life, you will never have more fun than to go and watch... Uh, Mike Marino live. Well, I appreciate that. Looks like we're going to be doing shows together, too. Right now, on March 6th, on the uh, virtual uh, television show, MetropolitanZoom.com, you get $5 off if you mention Festa Della. You're going to listen to Vanessa Rachi. Her, play, her uh, virtual show is called Festa Della Dona, which is all Italian entertainers. And you're going to see comedian Tara Canastracci, 
uh, Regina DeChico. There's a medium on the show. Her name is Tessa Del Zopa. And the special guest on the show, I believe, is also a friend of yours, Lena Prima. Sounds like a menu. I know, right? I'm hungry. Uh, aren't you friends with Lena Prima? Louis Prima Jr.'s? Louis, Louis Prima's daughter. Well, I, I, I haven't met her yet. I worked with her father at the Westbury Music Fair in, in Long Island when I was uh, about two years before Love 76 happened for me. And uh, he was just a wonderful guy. And I, uh, he and Sam Buter and the witnesses were just the most professional, tight, well-oiled machine you'd ever seen. Uh, but I haven't met his daughter yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hurry up and make all of this stuff happen. Everybody's getting a little bit older. Um, we love, uh, okay, well, all these questions got to go because we got to get out of here. We've got another five minutes, and I want to bring Peter Lemongello Jr. to the stage. So, Pete, tell everybody where they can find you on the Internet. You. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> PeterLemongello.com is my website. Um, and... But you also have to realize that <laughs> all the focus is on Peter Lemongello Jr., all right. the most exciting, explosive singer-dancer impressionist that has emerged in 40 years. And you're going to hear a lot about him. You give really great intros, that's for damn right. sure. So sitting behind us is the offspring of the legendary Peter Lemongello. This is Peter Lemongello Jr., who I've had the, the, the privilege to share the stage with a few times. So hello, everybody. Go ahead. Hey, everybody. <laughs> He's got a unique look. Uh, he's only 20 years old. He has one of the most incredible cars I've ever seen in my entire life. Tell him about your car and what's going on in your career. Well, I have a, uh, I just got a 1956 Mercury Montclair, and uh, I love it. It's gorgeous, and uh, I love old cars, and this one is one of the most striking and pretty cars I think that they ever made. And the ironic part is that was my first car in 1963 when I got my license. Uh, a Mercury, it's 1956 Mercury Montclair. All these years later, he buys the same car. Isn't that great? Ah, incredible. And obviously you like that uh, old school style of performing and the, uh, the songs from the past. What made you get into that? Well, I guess growing up, um, you know, around my dad's shows and, and everything, um, that certainly got me into music in general. Um, but I think my dad used to take me to a lot of shows, the rock and roll shows, and I got to meet and become friends with some of the legends from the 50s and 60s, and uh, I just started to love that music. Well, I think you're fantastic. You take after your father. We can see where the, uh, the heritage goes. And when I come back to Florida, we'll have you on the show, and we'll do a whole nice one-hour conversation about you and where you're going. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you on the Internet as well? Well, they can find me on uh, social media, on Facebook or Instagram, under Peter Lemongello Jr., and my website is PeterLemongelloJr.com. It's absolutely fantastic. Well... Thank you, everybody, for watching tonight's show. You can watch it again and again and again because now it's in stone. Watch us and listen to us all the time live from my mother's basement on iTunes, Google, Spotify, Anchor, Italian American Radio out of New York City, and also the podcast keeps on going and stays on forever on my YouTube channel, which is Mike Marino Live on YouTube. Peter Jr., who's your favorite doo-wop band? I have to take that question. That's coming from Anthony Rena out of Florida. Go ahead. That's a tough one because there's so many great ones. I think my favorite group is probably the harp tones. They were, they were so great. Uh, they had some of the prettiest harmony. Uh, and I think that's because they actually had a musical director, piano player, um, that put together all the harmonies. And uh, they, just, they were really great. I was blessed to know uh, four of the originals. And now there's only one left, but uh, Willie Winfield, the original lead singer, was a great guy, and I was blessed to know him. See how cool that is? He knows the history of everything that he's getting himself into because he's really into oh, what can, he does. He That's gets, unbelievable. He gets phone calls from Chubby Checker, and, <laughs> and, and when uh, uh, Lloyd Price was alive, he get. I mean, this, he knew everybody. And you work with the Dupree's, right? And, and uh, who's yeah. the guy that did uh, that sweet guy just passed? Um, Fred Paris. Fred Paris. From the uh, five, satins. five satins who had uh, 
in the still of the night. I mean, does it get any better than that? Oh, we had such fun with him. Hey, wait a minute. We, we can't even leave now. Tom Dreesen. Hi, Tom. How you doing, Tom, Tom Dreesen? Dreesen he's and saying I hello to you. I know he's saying hello right now. One of the best guys I ever <laughs> met. We worked, wait till you hear this, the Playboy Hotel in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Am I right, Tom? Well, he's watching he right answer. now. No, go ahead. And then he went on to major them. He was the opening act for Frank Sinatra for years. And boy, I, I, I'm so happy for your success, Tom. You deserve every, every bit of it. Tom, we love you. I think about you all the time. I've been lucky enough to share the stage with Tom Dreesen many, many times, especially when we did Me the too. Dina Martin roasts. <laughs> and I could imagine that. So that's really great. And I'm glad he's saying hello right now. I'm going to have to have Tom on the show. Look, at now I'm getting requests to have Alphonse Capone on the show. I don't know if he's available. But we got to get going. Thank you, everybody, for watching this show. And again, stay in touch with us on all social media. If you go to MikeMarino.net, you'll see my tour is back alive. Next Tuesday night, we got Ian Ziering from 90210 coming on the show. If you saw the show two weeks ago, I had the legendary actor Joe Montaigne on the show. Yes, I And I think it. in a couple of months... We'll come back to Florida, and we'll do a solo uh, conversation with Peter Lemangelo Jr. Remember, everybody, let's make America Italian again, right? The motto is you don't know nothing, you don't see nothing, you don't say nothing. And how do I end every single one of my broadcasts by always saying the same thing? Don't, don't take, take no shit, shit from, from nobody. nobody. Good night. I talk too much. A little. Yeah, well. Thanks for listening to Live from My Mother's Basement with me, Mike Marino. Make sure you log on to all my social media at Mike Marino Live on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.